great gowns, beautiful gowns. That was so creepy. Oh, my God. Hi, I'm Chelsea Fairless. And I'm Lauren Garoni, and welcome to the first and maybe last episode of the Every Outfit Podcast. Yeah, I've already, like, set a really weird, uncomfortable tone for this. Um, If you're listening, you're probably familiar with our Instagram account, Every Outfit on Sex in This City. But Lauren and I uh, decided to start a podcast because, as it turns out, we have highly nuanced opinions about many things, not just sex in the city. So it only seems appropriate to kick off our first episode by talking about sex in the city. I mean, it's it's the reason I think people want to listen to this episode, probably. We'll get you with other stuff, but there's relevant sex in the city shit to talk about. Uh, so the biggest news story pertaining to the reboot is the absence of Kim Cattrall. Obviously, a lot of fans are disappointed. We are disappointed. She was obviously an integral part of the show. But I do believe that it's possible to make the series without her. And I would rather have a reboot minus Samantha than no reboot at all, obviously. And, you know, all of the people that are tweeting, you know, this is going to be terrible i'm not watching like they're all gonna watch it yeah that's the the whole point sarah jessica parker revealed during a virtual benefit last week that we're the idea for and just like that oh yeah it's called and just like that you know that phrase we all know from the show yeah it's crazy i mean i obviously when i saw the title i did connect it to carrie's column but i never i mean we never were conscious enough of it to even make fun of it on the account or use it we've done a thousand posts in the vernacular of her column of i couldn't help but wonder yeah later that evening i got to thinking etc to me those are the more memorable catchphrases but you know so the idea came from Sarah Jessica Parker was listening to a podcast and she realized that her and Michael Patrick King had never gone on the record and talked about their experience in making the show. I can only imagine she was listening to the Origins podcast, which gets into the history of the show. Yeah, which is essential listening for, for any Sex in the City fan, honestly. But they were going to just do a podcast about the production. I guess the conversation spun out for it to be a full series, and here we are. So an HBO executive recently suggested that Samantha's absence would be attributed to the natural drifting apart of Friends over time, which... I guess is realistic enough, although I want to think that their friend group is stronger than that, obviously. But I don't think there's any explanation for her absence that is going to make people happy. I really, really do not want the cancer to come back. I would rather have her be murdered than have the cancer come back. So you want a mashup of The Undoing and Sex in the City? No, no, no. I want her murdered. Her murder is it's campy. It's like very Eyes of Laura Mars. I think what's going to be interesting about what they end up doing with the show is the fact that they've kind of burned through so many storylines in those movies, right? Samantha already moved to another city in the first film with big, you know, we already brought Aiden in in the second film. That's the other thing we're going to get into is Page Six's exclusive that uh, not only will, obviously, Kim Cattrall not be a part of it, that Big nor Steve will be in the show either. I mean, I'm not losing any sleep over the fact that Steve isn't in the show. Like, let's be real. You just hope this is setting the groundwork to make Miranda a lesbian. Of course. I, well, I mean, I think that it's inevitable. As, um, as Princess Nokia said, commented on one of our posts, you know that someone's going to be dead and someone's going to be a lesbian lesbian and I think that she's correct 
But then Chris Noth cryptically, because I guess people were spamming, we reported this on our account and we got a DM from someone that was like, I'm going to unfollow you guys. I love your account, but I'm not here for spoilers. And it's like, lady, we don't write the show. <laughs> so people, I guess, were also spamming Chris Noth's Instagram and he responded by saying, everything changes, including announcements in the rags. Well, and he was he was also like responded to someone and said something to the effect of if page six says it, it must be true with a winky face emoji, which is very sub- suggestive. And who knew Chris knows knew about emojis? Well, I love that page six is roped into this because as we all know, page six was a big part of Sex in the City. They did, they were the first people that reported that Carrie was dating the new Yankee. Of course, they broke the news of Big and Natasha's engagement. So it's only fitting that yeah. they have the exclusives about the and just like that limited series. <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. Back to Samantha. How do you want them to explain her absence? I have a couple of ideas. Yeah, I mean, again, I would love if they maybe were inspired by our idea for a potential Sex in the City 3 where Samantha dies from a, a freak Hitachi in a jacuzzi accident. Yeah, and the, the series opens with her funeral, which I think makes sense. It's very First Wives Club. People forget that the First Wives Club was also a film about four best friends, except for Stockard Shannon killed herself in like the first scene. Which I think after the harrowing year that we've all been, maybe it's not about opening at a funeral. So I take back my idea. I, I have another idea. I think it's good. Uh, so Samantha is incarcerated. <laughs> I don't know why she's incarcerated, but no, it's so genius. She's in jail. Who knows why? It's great because it could open the door for a spinoff show that's like a women in prison show where Samantha's in prison and then she wouldn't have to interact with the rest of the cast at all. Samantha is the new black? Yeah, exactly. Except for maybe like Smith Jared could visit her in jail once or something. Now you're making me want things that I know are not going to (laughs) happen. I know. Um, That makes sense. She'd probably go to jail the way Martha Stewart went to jail, which was not for insider trading, but perjury. I would just love to see like Samantha's hot butch girlfriend in jail. It would be incredible. Do you think Leah should play her? Yeah, Leah should definitely play her. See, we've already cast it. It's perfect. HBO Max, slide into our DMs. That's how we do official business. So that means Carrie's single. Carrie's single. Okay, well, let's talk about potential plot ideas beyond things that pertain to Samantha's absence. I know that this is never going to happen, but I would love if the reboot was kind of like the Brady Bunch movies. So it's 2021, but they're all trapped in 2001, which I think could make sense given, you know, the current climate and fashion. Oh, absolutely. Is that it? Well, okay, that's that's one thing I would like. Another thing I would like to see in the reboot, you know, in the in Sex and the City, we never met the parents of any of the four leads, which was a deliberate choice by the writers because they wanted to illustrate the fact that these, you know, career-focused single women had created their own chosen family. But for the reboot, I think that we need to meet Carrie's mother, and I think that Carrie's mother needs to be played by... Bernadette Peters? Bernadette Peters or Carol Kane. 
That's good. That's really good. I agree with you. Another thing that's going to be interesting to see how they deal with this is in the intervening years from when the show went off the air to now is we as an audience have become so equipped to women in their 50s living in New York, getting drunk, shopping and fucking through the Real Housewives of New York is like, <laughs> totally. I, don't, I don't know how you innervate this idea anymore. What I hope I truly hope they don't try to do is put millennial avatars for each character. Because yeah, no. That would be terrible. Because I think that's the weakest part of the first film is the the Jennifer Hudson storyline. Like, we don't need a younger... She didn't get a storyline. That was, that was the whole thing. That's the other issue. I saw another quote by Sarah Jessica Parker, which, again, this is all speculation. This is kind of verbal fan fiction. They are writing the series as we speak. I'm sure Michael Patrick King has an overarching idea, but Sarah Jessica Parker has been doing virtual benefits and promoting her shoe line. And so, of course, people are asking her about this. I saw another quote where she was like... I I just wonder how the ladies deal with social media like would Carrie have a podcast and I was like oh fuck that's what they're gonna do that's how they're gonna do that voiceover is Carrie's column is gonna be a podcast now I do kind of hate that I mean I don't obviously they have to bring it can't be frozen in time unless they go with my genius Brady Bunch movie concept how could they not but I think that I'm not against the idea of them getting a little meta about things. Like, I think that it would be really amazing if there was a plot line where Carrie's canceled because some woke Gen Zer calls her out for something problematic that she wrote in her column like 20 years ago. During, of course, like a 90-second A 90-second second street wide. Exactly. Maybe the video of her being called out could go viral. I'm not opposed to that plot line because I feel like Instead of atoning for the sins of the past series by making this reboot extremely woke, they should weave in a plot line like that. Or do, do something a little more self-aware than just finally casting people of color or hiring them as writers, which is another thing we need to get Yeah, the, the writer's room is really great. It's kind of split down the middle between three OG writers, including Michael Patrick King and then Julie Rottenberg and Eliza Zersky. Yeah, they wrote on Sex and the City back in the day. They've been nominated for three Emmys. I believe one of them also wrote on Divorce. And together, they wrote many of the out-of-town episodes, the Hamptons episode, the San Francisco episode, the Atlantic City episode, etc. Julie also wrote Lauren's favorite episode, My Motherboard Myself, which was the episode where Miranda's mother died. I think that episode is a good reference point for the reboot. I think we could tell from the teaser the reboot is going to be tonally different than Sex and the City was. And I think that episode really exemplifies not only the talent of the actors, but the writers. And it's, it did have a very interesting tone. It was, it was very sad, but it was also hilarious and i hope that that carries through into the reboot pun intended yeah carry oh uh and then there are the three new writers samantha irby who we're obsessed with yeah we're the most excited about because i mean she's she's a writer she's written several you know new york times best-selling essay collections that have very cute animals on the cover she's very talented she's also written on two of my favorite shows shrill which is iconic and work in progress which not enough people have seen but is an incredible show on showtime just like the most fabulous queer show and she's also a lesbian so maybe she can write this iconic miranda plot line that we've been dreaming of for years you also have rashna 
Fruschbaum has written on Fresh Off the Boats, Parks and Rec. She also hosts a sports-themed podcast on Crooked Media called Hall of Shame. Yeah, I know less about her, but she seems cool. Then we have Kelly Goff, who has written on 20s, Reversing Row. She's also a political pundit who's appeared on CNN and MSNBC. We need to, like, pull those clips up on YouTube. I mean, I'm sure she's fierce. Again, you have a split down the middle writer's room where you have three people of color, three white people, three OG writers, three new writers. So hopefully that fusion of voices will blend beautifully. And I don't think we've explicitly stated it, but to be clear, there have never been people of color in the Sex and the City writer's room. It's always been white people. So this is a step in the right direction. But most importantly, what do we think the fashion's going to look like? I have a few few thoughts about fashion. You do? (laughs) Okay, first of all, I don't want to see Carrie in streetwear. Obviously, this woman can pull off practically anything, but I don't need to see her wearing HBA. We know how that worked out for Emily in Paris. Although, I could definitely see Samantha in like a a hood by air runway ensemble. Like something, some sort of white leather bondage outfit with a bra top. But unfortunately, we're never going to get that. Well, I do have a question for you. Do you think that Carrie's going to have a Telfar bag? I think she should. I think she should have the the tiniest one. A teeny tiny one. That makes sense. Maybe the UGG collaboration that they just did. Oh, cute. Yeah, I would love that. My biggest hope for the fashions of the reboot is that I really want to see Miranda return to her menswear looks. Big boxy suits are back in fashion right now, which I love. I would love to see her in Balenciaga or The Row, Bottega, something to that effect. Which we know from Cynthia Nixon telling us that Patricia Field made a concerted effort during the show to pivot her away from that style. So I will be interested to see if if we can get her back there. I don't know. I don't think the hyper-feminine look for Miranda is modern. And I don't think it's modern for Charlotte either. I hope that they also sort of pull her away from the peplums and the cupcake aprons and that sort of stuff. It's going. Her style is going to be the evolution, I think, that Victoria Beckham has done from... Totally. From going... I from, mean, we should be so lucky. Oh, fashion fan fiction is what we're writing right now. But the pivot that Victoria Beckham did from basically stealing Roland Murray's whole whole deal into this <laughs> yes his entire aesthetic that was savage <laughs> it was but also Roland Murray was like I'm getting out of this industry at the same time yeah and then you know her latest collection is... and now she's picking up where Phoebe Philo I left off I was just gonna say yeah so... I'm not hating I mean I I love it maybe, but maybe we're gonna see actually an alignment of all of their styles as fashion in a way it's gotten more diverse but also more homogenous than it's ever been I hope that they do bring back some pieces from the series. I think that would be really cool. Like if Charlotte wore the Prada lipstick skirt, that would be amazing. And we know that she still has it because Kristen Davis literally wore it to one of our events a couple years ago. You know, we're in such a nostalgic period in culture and certainly fashion. There's so many of the iconic things from Sex and the City have been reissued, whether it's the Dior saddlebag or again, the Prada lipstick skirt. I'm shocked that, I mean, it seems like maybe we'll get into Dior later or at some point at this podcast. It seems like Dior as a brand is kind of trying to be the least culturally relevant luxury house in France. And to me, it's insane that they have not reissued any of the newspaper stuff. That is purely insane. You are correct. It is insane. Like, 
especially the vintage market for those pieces are insane. I follow 10,000 vintage dealers and literally every day I'm seeing the swimsuit. I'm seeing it's basically products the, with that print. Yeah, it's basically gold currency as fashion. Yeah. Okay, we're done talking about Sex in the City now. I've run out of things to say. Actually, the sad thing is that this podcast could be only about sex in the city. Somehow, even though we've been writing about sex in the city for years now, there's there's no bottom to it, you it, know? It's not. It's what we've done our Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours, and we are experts in sex in the city. Well, fuck, at least we've managed to do something constructive with that. Most people just spend 10,000 hours watching sex in the city. And your idea of, of constructive success is a, is a popular Instagram account? Fuck, we're sad. God. All okay, right. Let's move on. Yeah. Moving on into fashion month. Another thing that is giving me a tremendous amount of anxiety. Or am I anxious and I'm bringing that to fashion month? In New York Fashion Week was a shell of its former self. Let's just say to kick things off. I mean, as someone who developed an interest in fashion during the 90s, during the heyday of those great 90s designers like Isaac Mizrahi and Helmut Lang and Todd Oldham. And, you know, it's so sad to see New York Fashion Week's hold such little cultural significance. This is Tom Ford's fault. And what I mean by that is <laughs> he is the chair of the CFDA. And in late January, when they released what the fashion schedule uh, was going to be, they allowed for American designers to basically show at any time during any city, which is why we have this chaotic... I know you don't watch WandaVision on Disney+, Plus, but... It, <sighs> Lauren's talking about nerd shit again. I hate this. But it is very relevant because it's like the the reality of what we knew of Fashion Week is collapsing in on itself. Looking at that CFDA calendar for the New York, sh New York shows was the darkest thing I've ever seen. It was like staring into the pit in Silence of the Lambs. Precious. <laughs> Sorry. Here, precious. Th that's literally the vibe. Like it was terrible, and you were like, "You're like, hey, where's Mark Jacobs on the schedule?" And it was like, "Precious." precious. <laughs> it was. It was honestly like uh, because, as Lauren said, yes, designers, New York designers, could show outside of the week long period that was allotted for New York Fashion Week. But there was still a week long period where most people showed, or there there was a full calendar, but there wasn't. It attempt. was the saddest group of people. It was like I literally think that Anna Sui was with the headliner which isn't sad like she's amazing but it's not I want to bring this up because I was reading like Proenza was the biggest deal in what fucking universe well yeah Proenza Schooler got a bunch of headlines and what they do best if you think about it which is like nepotism casting it's been like this collection was the most relevant that they've been since like Ashley Olsen was wearing a PS1 but you know what it's crazy because they never do stunt cast or they haven't done stunt casting it's not like they're having Pete Davidson in their shows you Although know that is a good idea I know. What we're referring to, they had... Ella Emhoff. Ella Emhoff. She's cool looking. I mean, I think that, you know, they need to revive the CK1 campaign with Ella Emhoff, Pete Davidson. Who else? We're just frustrated creative directors, I think. I mean, clearly. I want to see CK1 ads with Ella Emhoff, Pete Davidson, and like, oh, they definitely cast Hunter Schaefer. Oh, absolutely. Did you see Kathy Horn, who, as Chelsea and I met in fashion school, I wanted to be a fashion journalist and a critic, so I have avidly read her work for years. But in her piece for The Cut, she lists Norma Kamali's collection as the winner of New York Fashion Week. I, I don't have any issue with that. Okay, 
one thing, Norma Kamali's lookbooks are fucked. They've always been fucked. They always look every year. They look the same. It's terrible. However, if you actually go into the Norma Kamali store, which is right by Trump Tower, I think it still exists. Her pieces are so fucking timeless. And they're so, they work on such a wide range of women. And I I honestly stand by the fact that Norma Kamali was the most interesting part of Fashion Week. Because no. all these other designers are fucking whack. No. Chelsea, I would agree with you. I own Norma Kamali pieces. I wore a Norma Kamali outfit to your birthday. But this collection was fucked, okay? It looked like a Project Runway challenge. There was literally a teal velour cargo pantsuit. Okay, that is that does sound terrible. Okay, and an acid wash denim cocoon jacket with an orange sequin dress underneath it. That's styling, though. Okay, I don't even know why I'm defending this. It's, yeah, clearly it's Norma Kamali's show was whatever. I think... One thing we haven't talked about uh, as it pertains to Fashion Week is the fact that pretty much every established brand did has not shown. Ralph Lauren, Mark J- Mark Jacobs, Michael Kors, all of those brands that we think of the pillars of American fashion have not had shows. And then all, none of the smaller brands that we give a shit about, you know, Telfar, Rodarte, Eckhaus Lada, none of them had shows either. So I just... So by default, uh, Colleen Estrada had the most interesting show? Exactly. I mean, th- also, the other thing that was like pretty terrifying is like when I was looking at the calendar, I was like, Libertine? Imitation of Christ? I was like, what fucking year is it? That's what I'm saying. It's like, where was Heatherette on, on that calendar? <laughs> I mean, you mentioned Kathy Horn. One thing that she touched upon in her, apart from her uh, glowing review of Norma Kamali, in her Fashion Week roundup for The Cut, she was talking about how New York Fashion Week really took off in the 60s because all of the great American sportswear designers from the era like Bill Blass and Klein, etc. They had to band together, show at the same time, create this week just so that they could distinguish themselves from Europe and compete with Europe. And now American designers would rather release their lookbooks during Milan and Paris so that they can, their work can be seen alongside Louis Vuitton, you know, on Vogue Runway. It's kind of insane. Can we also talk about Vogue Runways, just the way they're showing the collections? Because when we used to go, when it used to be style.com, it was like, here's the latest collections that premiered. Now they're doing a curation where some collections are there for days at a time. And it's like, I didn't look well, at- people are paying for that shit. Let's be real. Oh, wow. I'm pretty sure you can buy your way to a certain placement or a certain kind. I mean, I'm not- I'm so alleged, naive. Allegedly. Honestly, the craziest thing I've seen on Vogue Runway probably was the Colleen Estrada show because- You know, it taught us that Vogue Runway can support gifts. Who fucking knew? Yes, the designer Hilary Taymor was inspired by, do do you remember the 90s Scholastic series uh, Animorphs? Where it's like a person morphs into... Yeah, and that was exactly what the lookbook was. It was like, you see the model and the look, and then they morph into an iguana or some shit. But she actually worked with the illustrator of the, those books, David Burroughs, no uh, Mattingly, to make those. Okay, that's cool. I know, that's super cool. But it makes me wonder, why did no one then try to adopt a lookbook that looked like a Delius catalog from the late 90s? I mean, I would love that. I think... To- also, it's like, now that I know that Vogue Runway supports gifts, it's like, why am I not seeing lookbooks where it's a model standing on a rotating pedestal, like some QVC shit, so I can see the back of the look? 
Yeah, if E's red carpet can figure this out, certainly Fashion Week can. Because that's what fashion journalists are always saying as a justification for why fashion shows need to exist. They're like, you can't see the backs on Vogue Runway. And it's like, you could, but no one cares to show you. Yes, we've long had the opinion that Fashion Week, Fashion Month doesn't need to exist. And I think Tom Ford has shown us we're incorrect because we're... We're Yeah, we were very wrong about that. Because we are having a meltdown. Honestly, it's chaos. It's a nightmare. Right, like during London Fashion Week, I was like, okay, we're in London Fashion Week. And then I saw an Instagram story where editors in New York were driving out to a drive-through to see The Kate Show, which was a film by uh, Sean Baker who did Tangerine. And that was the collection. I mean, that seems kind of cool. I don't know. But why couldn't they do that during actual New York Fashion Week? Why are they doing that during London? I don't know. London Fashion Week was also extremely boring. You thought so? Okay, look. It's like I always like designers like Molly Goddard, Simone Rocha. But, you know, their shows are very similar from season to season, which isn't a drag. Not every designer has to reinvent the wheel every single season. Like these chicks have a huge heart on for Tool and I'm happy to see them make shit out of Tool, you know, until the end of time. But I don't know if there are a lot of new ideas offered up during, you know, London Fashion Week. Well, there are no more. Uh, new ideas. A collection that I really liked was Yuhan Wang, who's a recent graduate of Central St. Martin's. And she, oh, I didn't see that. She presented a lookbook of a lot of like lo-fi romanticism, which I think speaks to very much a moment that we're in right now. So I love that collection. I will check it out. Yeah, I mean, I honestly don't know what else to say about London. So I guess that leaves us with Milan, which we're currently still, we're at the tail end as we're recording this. Most of the major, I mean, Milan is kind of the weakest of the the fashion weeks. And well, because there's like two people that show then. Right. And those two people are not showing, right? So uh, Curing that owns Gucci and Bottega Veneta are going to reveal their collections later, closer to the selling season, which actually makes way more sense. And then uh, Versace is going to debut their fashion film during Paris. So we're literally left with Fendi. And Prada. And Prada, which I guess we can get into. With Fendi, you know, this was Kim Jones's first ready-to-wear show for Fendi, you know, which, of course, was previously designed by Karl Lagerfeld. Uh, I'm a fan of Kim Jones. He's, you know, of course, been designing menswear for Louis Vuitton and before that for Dior. He did one couture show for Fendi last month where he put Kate Moss in a very regrettable mother of the bride look but when I looked at the Fendi show yesterday I realized that I'm just never going to care about Fendi as a brand the the aesthetic just does not speak to me I don't it, it shouldn't speak to us. When I looked at it, I said, oh, this looks like edgy St. John. That's exactly what it was like. And, Do you, you know, like- I don't like fur. I don't think that putting fur on the runway in 2021 is modern. I think it looks old lady-ish. It's obviously not ethical. But beyond that, I hate that the color palette for Fendi is always the same. It's limited. Brown and camel. It's only colors that are like shades of foundation. Think about it. Right. But also like one of those uh, beauty brands that does a really oppressive limited run of foundation ranges. Yeah. It's like these people, these Fendi designers have literally never heard of red. You know what I mean? They're like, who is she? Also, it's clear that someone in the accessories department of Fendi were like, hey, Gucci sells tights with the GG on it for $900. Let's do that. People love that shit, right? It's like, no, 
No, I'm not going <laughs> to spend $900 on some Fendi tights. No, thank you. Yeah, no, hard pass. I don't know. It's To me, it's just deeply uninteresting. Whereas I thought Prada was beautiful. Did you really? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, this is the second collection that was designed by both Musha Prada and Raph Simmons. It wasn't a huge departure from Musha's usual shtick, which is, you know, very modest looks, print clashing, ugly shoes, uh, modern takes on the 50s and 60s. I honestly, like if I didn't know that Raph had a hand in it, I wouldn't have thought that they had brought another designer on. But, but I mean, but I guess because I know that he's involved, you can you can kind of see it in the color palette, the sportier stuff, like the shoes that were like tights with those David Hicks type prints. Yeah, obviously Prada is known for a scale of minimalism. This was certainly on, I would say, the more maximalism scale. I understand why they brought Raph on. You know, it's a her- Prada is a heritage brand with one of the greatest living designers at the helm, but Prada doesn't have the hype factor that Louis Vuitton, Balenciaga, Gucci have at the moment. And of course, they want to groom Raph, you know, so he can ultimately take over the brand. And yeah, we, you know. we see what's going on, despite whatever Marc Jacobs said in that after after collection panel that they had that looked like a, if you've ever seen uh, when Oprah was doing Weight Watchers and it's just her in a room with like 72 screens that's what that Prada after conversation looked like and Mark Jacobs was, was like there's only one Prada she is it it's like she's gonna die eventually okay that's so fucking dark I mean to me again it's like I understand why they brought Raph on but it's kind of insane because creatively no brand needs left less help than Prada that's very true. It would be like if Stanley Kubrick was directing a movie and then they were like, you know what? Let's bring Francis Ford Coppola into this just to like freshen things up a bit. It's like actually insane. That's true. I guess what was surprising for me is kind of given what's going on in the culture and, and how we dress now, I was expecting more of that mid 90s or really mid to late 90s minimalism, right? Like no one does a, a cashmere knit <laughs> ribbed polo, long sleeve polo like Prada. Well, they, yeah, and they always have that stuff in the store. Like, there's stuff that's always in the store that airs on that side. You know, like all of the nylon pieces that they have now. I have a question for you about the the sort of repeated looks, which was that, like, scrunched-up blazer, and then there was, like, a, a, a polo top, but then underneath that was a turtleneck of a pattern, but then that turtleneck went underneath the pulled-up sleeve blazer. Oh, I love that. I think this, I mean, the styling's amazing. I think the whole thing. Oh, I just mean physically what layers like, go on first and like under. How do you do that? Yeah, it was a I very trompe no look. I have no idea. Also, I want to say Prada no longer uses fur, which is great. And they showed incredible, a range of incredible fake fur pieces. You know, the technology is there. People just need to be more creative. It's interesting just looking at the kind of the fashion criticism responses come out from the product collection. I know that Raph said, you know, this is about uh, optimism and everything's on a on a. People upswing. always fucking say that. It's so yeah, boring. Yeah, it's such a boring thing to say. Also, it's it's not like I look at that collection and go, this makes me happy. I don't understand that kind of criticism where it's like, oh, lots of patterns. That means they're feeling optimistic about shit. It's like what? Shall we move on to the first installment of a segment that we're very excited about? Kardashianholics Anonymous? (laughs) Cue the theme song. 
Was that theme song a good idea? I don't know. Guys, I don't know if you could tell, but we did that ourselves. <laughs> um, Lauren slaved away for a whole 15 seconds on that theme. <laughs> Whatever. It sparks joy for me. Of course, the biggest news. Well, okay. Should we start with Kimye or should we start with 818 Tequila? I mean, let's go through Kimye quickly because that's going to develop right. over the next year. So that's the pandemic of 2021 is just riding the waves of the impending Kimye divorce. Yeah, it finally happened. I called this the second they got married, as did many people, I'm sure. But it finally happened. Kim filed for divorce. I feel terrible for her, but I also feel a sense of relief on her behalf because being married to him could not have been easy. And, you know, the Kardashian women are so fucking ride or die when it comes to their men, you know? It's like, you know that she put up with so much shit. He told everyone that she almost aborted North. Like that, I'm still not over that. That's extremely fucked up. Their their family is like a Greek tragedy. They have to have a fatal flaw. You know, like Madonna has acting. That's a thing that she'll never just surround. <laughs> and they have, you know, I'm sorry, men. but she killed it in Evita. Actually, she didn't. I mean, tell that to Patti Lapone. Also, I mean... He called Chris Jenner Chris Jung Un, which was an incredible moment for pop culture. I hope that he weaves that into new music. These next few albums, I think, are going to be rough. But it's like, how much more dark and depressing can his music be? Like, I was listening to Yeezus on the way over here, and I was like, Jesus, this is fucking dark. I think Kim is in what I like to call her soon-to-be ray of light era. She's totally. going to have new style. She's going to have a law degree. My obsession, which I put in the doc, is the images that they released in the Daily Mail, these picture exclusives, the first photos of her since the divorce announcement. Oh, in like an all vinyl outfit. In an all vinyl outfit. But it's very clear to me that it's just her in her driveway because she's, <laughs> she's not wearing a mask. She got out of a car. It's a very editorial looking photo. It's from, a, I looked, it's from a photo agency called Mega, which I've never heard before, right? It's usually like Splash or Yeah, it looks like it looks like a... A uh, Yeezy lookbook. Yeah, so I love that we've now gone back to almost the 1950s concept of paparazzi where it's like, I'm totally. setting up the image. This is what it's going to look like. And we're not really going anywhere. And you can fucking tell, right? Because when photos are taken of them going to Nobu, they have the masks on. She has no mask on. Yeah. She's clearly in Hidden Hills. And I'm I'm here for this. Okay? <laughs> it looks like, you know, those Stephen Mizell uh, Italian Vogue Yeah, issues. yeah, Vogue Italia, the, the Hollywood issue. Totally. I mean, I'm really excited to see how her style is going to evolve because, of course, before Kanye, she looked very L.A. She was very, you know, Kitson, very Dash. She didn't really have a particularly distinctive sense of style. And then Kanye famously made her throw out her entire wardrobe and not, gave her a high wrong. fashion makeover. Remember, did you ever hear he was like, I gave her a copy of Kareen Reutfeld's coffee table book and was like, this is the Bible. You need to study this. You know what? I miss that Kanye. <laughs> well, and then, of course, like she pivoted from that to like what we now know as, as the Yeezy look, you know, body conscious clothes. Which I don't. I, I resemble shapewear that's what i was gonna say is i don't know how much her style i don't think it's gonna be a 180 pivot either because so much of the skims aesthetic was totally was gleaned off of of easy 
Yeah, no, it, it definitely was. So shall we move on to, you know, where there is death, there is always birth. And we have some new Kardashian couples to talk about. It's very exciting. Oh, oh, yes, yes. Uh, you are talking about how Courtney and Travis Barker made it made their relationship Instagram official. I mean, it, this relationship is not something that I anticipated, but obviously it makes sense. Visually, it reminds me of the good Charlotte guys and their wives. You know, you would think that these sort of pop punk guys would want to date chicks that look like Kat Von D, but they actually want to date chicks with like tans that drink collagen smoothies. Yes, it's the least interesting Kardashian with the <laughs> second least interesting <laughs> member of Blink-182. It's perfect. It is kind of perfect. Did you see that uh, he posted, Travis Barker posted on Instagram stories, a love note that Courtney wrote to him and it said, to lots of fun adventures, which is like perfect, you know, you're, you're newly in love. But then it said, may we destroy each other completely, love Courtney. Courtney. Yikes. That's heavy. That's almost as heavy as, uh, what's that Blink-182 song about suicide? Oh, Adam's song. Yeah. Well, I looked up the phrase because I was like, surely she's referencing a song and she's not. She's just being like an emo ninth grader. Well, we know that she's emo. Like, she has mood problems. Let's be real. Scott Disick is also in a new relationship. Good for him. Uh, Good for him, question mark? (laughs) He is dating Amelia Gray Hamlin, who is a 19-year-old model. Guys, you should imagine quotes around the phrase model. Instagram model, sure. Definitely second-tier nepotism model. A thousand percent. I mean, her... Her mom is Lisa Rinna. Her dad is the actor Harry Hamlin, who was on L.A. Law. But the most interesting thing about him is that he was married to Ursula Andress in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, Most interesting to you is, I think, what you meant to say. Well, yeah, exactly. I do have a a theory. Like, Scott has become the uh, Matthew McConaughey and Dazed and Confused of, like, the Kardashians. (laughs) It's like, I keep getting older. They keep staying the same age. No, a thousand percent. I mean, I don't begrudge people for having an age gap in their relationship. However, given Scott's tumultuous history... I want him to be with someone who is on the same page as him. Someone that's ready to be a stepmom. Someone who can deal with Courtney's terrible vibes. I just don't know if it's this girl. But I have a theory about why he keeps dating 19-year-olds. Because when he started dating Sophia Richie, she was 19. And now Amelia Hamlin's 19. You know, Scott has struggled with substance abuse issues. And I think he's like, you know what the problem is? Not that I compulsively go to clubs. It's because the women I'm with can drink. And if I'm with a woman who... <laughs> can't drink <laughs> legally genius. then i think i'm set i think this is actually their sobriety coaches i we, love that who happens to fuck oh my god i think that's all i have for today really you don't want to get into kenny's 818 tequila oh, fuck. so kendall jenner came under fire this week for handing a bottle of tequila to a cop wait what <laughs> sorry i'm joking just the pepsi ad <laughs> This is what's fucked up is I couldn't even understand that you were being Did I deliver that so convincingly? Well, I mean, given all the bullshit that has gone on with this family, I thought that was definitely possible because I saw... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm just like, now I can't get the image of that out of my head. No, but I also thought that that was possible because uh, this week on Dumois, someone submitted, it's like, oh, I'm I'm at Craig's and Justin Bieber, Haley Bieber, and Kendall are here and she's got the bottle of 818 at the table. She brought her own tequila to a restaurant for dinner that's really extra so that's why i thought that might be possible (laughs) 
So she announced that she's launching a brand called 818 Tequila. She has been, I mean, formulating this tequila. I don't know what you want to call it. She's been developing this tequila for years. She's been anonymously submitting it to tequila competitions, which apparently is a thing. Design-wise, I mean, obviously this is what I care most about in alcohol is how does the bottle look, which is kind of neutral. I mean, it's... I'm glad that they didn't go too millennial and make it extremely hipstery, but also they didn't go super. I mean, one thing I realized is that all tequila looks like shit. Like, have you ever seen a bottle of tequila? It's disgusting. It's literally made for like men in their 50s. It's like super ornate and like nasty, you know, like a like a bottle of uh, Patron or Don Julio. It's like that shit looks disgusting. I pulled up the 818 tasting notes, which uh, speak of its aromas of butterscotch, a damp wood and chocolate. <laughs> damp wood. Wait, here's I'm the- sorry. It's like I grew up in like Northern California, deep in the redwood forest and like damp wood is not a good smell. Well, Uh, How do you feel about this? It means it's time to replace your deck. This is a sweet and vibrant on the tongue with asparagus notes. Okay, what? Glints of orange zest and uh, caramel that lingers on the finish. Wow. So obviously people are upset because this hits the nexus of what people on the internet freak the fuck out about, which is like Kardashians and then cultural appropriation. Yeah, what gets their outrage pussies, you know, as we wet as fuck. <laughs> For 818 tequila. I saw someone make the point of like, don't drink, you know, Kendall's tequila, drink Patron. It's like, Patron was created by a white man as well. That was Paul Mitchell, the hair guy. <laughs> That's how he became a Wait, fucking billionaire. what? Yes. Patron was started by Paul Mitchell. For those who grew up in the 90s, the fucking hair guy. Jesus Christ. That's how Paul Mitchell is a billionaire. (laughs) Not because of Paul Mitchell hair products, because he fucking created Patron and then sold it to Bacardi. This feels like when I learned that um, Lori Laughlin was was married to uh, Mossimo. And I was like, ooh, okay. Now I get it. I do think that... The most interesting thing, there's a great InStyle article written by, I believe, Sam Reed, where he does a great kind of overview of of the issues with that. But there's been a huge boom in celebrity tequila, which has caused uh, basically a run on agave, which is not endless. But Yeah, which then like puts Mexican-owned brands at a disadvantage, which is fucked up. To me, that's the most problematic aspect of this. I don't know of her just having a tequila company. I don't know if it's the most egregious example of cultural appropriation, although it's not my culture, so what the fuck do I know? But I was just interested to learn that sort of like champagne, this certain kind of agave can only be produced in certain regions in Mexico. For sure. So what I found the most interesting piece of information from this InStyle article is that every bottle of tequila has a uh, NOM, a four-digit number assigned by the regulators of tequila that tells you where it's made and exactly what other tequilas are made from there. So Dwayne Johnson's brand and Patron are the only brands that are made by a distillery. Kendall's, NOM 1137, their distillery produces hers and 60 other brands. So basically the idea is for her to say that it took four years to develop isn't true. I mean, they're just treating it. They're just giving her different just a different barrel barrels from the factory and they're like this one was in oak and this one was in it's like whatever yeah it's like what i imagine tell i know so much about alcohol the other thing is i saw that it was going to be 60 dollars which feels very expensive yeah but the sick sad thing is that you and i will both buy it and so will many other people we just will 
we'll buy it to do a tequila tasting video on the account. Yeah. I don't know. I think it is telling that no one gives a shit when George Clooney sells Casa Amigos for literally a billion dollars. I'm just sad that the tequila is not called like Kenny's tequila. Well, that's the other thing. is With a photo of her in the micro thong on the bottle. That's what I want. That, you could sell me that for like $200. (laughs) Speaking of which, I drove by the the incredible Skims billboard on Sunset Boulevard on my way here where Kendall is in the micro thong. And it's just glorious. It honestly, like it, I hope that billboard never goes away. And by that, you mean the fits everybody thong, which is what it's called on the website. And it is completely sold out. In every colorway. Are you getting the fits everything thong? No, it's sold out. I feel like you would look good at it. Me? I would look like that's not happening. Um, How do I explain this in a way since I know my parents are going to be listening to this podcast? The the situation I have going on, if I wore that micro thong, it would look like a Charlie Chaplin situation. (laughs) I'd have to get a little top, (laughs) top hat on my belly button. Anyway, guys, that was our first episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you didn't... Was it good? Or did we just make a terrible fucking mistake? You know, if you didn't care for it, just think of it this way. This is the bottom, right? We can only get better from this point. If you didn't like us, just like cyber bully us in the App Store reviews. And then we'll cry ourselves to sleep. Uh, Anyway, until next week, bitches. Bye. Bye. Bye.